Um, this morning, we're going to take a moment and we're going to step away from the book of Matthew and we're going to look together at a passage from 2 Timothy. So if you would, please open up your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 996. We'll be looking at chapter 3, verse 10 through chapter 4, verse 5. There's a, uh, there's a meme that's going around kind of right now, and it's this guy, he tilts his head and he looks at you and he says, you sure about that? That has been going on in my head over and over since I chose this portion of Scripture. Because this is a lot. If you look at it, um, there's probably three or four sermons that you could take out of this text. And if I was a smart man, which I am not, I would have done that. So, but because this portion is so rich with truth and various elements, there's a lot of... Uh, each each section really deserves its own its own attention and its own consideration when being preached. Um, we could have a sermon on persecution and persevering in the faith. You could probably host an entire weekend series on what does it mean that all Scripture is breathed out by God. We could talk about its purpose in our lives. We could teach about general versus special revelation and. We'll touch on some of that for sure. But for today, it seemed right to end around verse 5 of chapter 4 to preach the word. My hope is that this word today would embolden the church where it stands. I hope it would remind us that we cannot be complacent because we have a duty to share the gospel with all. And on this Reformation Sunday, we would do well to remember the reformers of the past who gave of themselves, no matter the cost, for the convictions they held in God's Word as final authority. So our goal today is not to tackle every minute detail, though there is a time and place for that. We will cover a lot, but it's rather to grasp this Context: this final exhortation that Paul is giving to his younger co-worker in the faith. And before we dive into those details, I want to look at the broader context here. This particular book is the second letter of the, from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Paul is imprisoned for a second time, and when reading this letter, you would quickly realize how vastly different it is from the first letter he sent to Timothy. In the first letter, Paul's overarching goals there are to instruct his young protege on how he can faithfully shepherd the congregation at Ephesus. Timothy's a young man. He needed the counsel from a wiser, older brother that could encourage him as he faced challenges faced the challenges of combating sin within the church as he dealt with false teachers attempting to lead the flock away. And he needed further help to further establish the groundwork for the church's operation so that it might flourish. But here in the second letter, it's a lot different. Paul is at the end of his life and he senses it, he knows it. 
And we see that in chapter 4, verses 6 and 8, right after what we're about to read. He says that he's already being poured out as a drink offering. He's fought the good fight. He has finished the race and he's kept the faith. Death is right around the corner for Paul. He's remained faithful. And he looks forward to God's faithfulness after death. And now as he examines his life, the lessons he has learned from the Lord, and the lessons he's learned from the Lord, and as he examines his present persecution and all the trials he has seen the Lord be faithful through, he encourages Timothy with some of his last words to stand firm in the faith. But who, who exactly was Timothy? He's a man of Jewish heritage and very strong in his faith. 2 Timothy 1 tells us that his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice kept a sincere faith in Jesus. According to Paul, he is sure that that same sincere faith from his grandmother and his mother also dwell in Timothy also. Being from a Jewish background, Timothy was very familiar with the Scriptures as shown in our text today, and now saw Christ as what those Scriptures were pointing to. He has a great history with Paul too. Paul took Timothy as a disciple, and together they traveled to spread the Gospel throughout Macedonia, Thessalonica, Corinth, and ended with Paul stationing him in Ephesus to govern the church there. And that brings us to our text now. Paul's words here are primarily geared towards those that believe in the work of Jesus and confess Him as Lord. And I invite you as we read and as we go along to examine your own past experiences. How you came to faith and where you stand now as a Christian. Whether you are new to the faith or whether you are well-seasoned, we all can point back to someone, somewhere, preaching the Gospel to us. And here I believe Paul has a reason for pointing out some of their past together. It's to prepare themselves and others for the future, for the glory of Christ's kingdom. I think for the Christian today, we would do well to remember the time of when we came to faith and how God saved us to propel us in preaching the gospel. Would you read with me together in God's word, starting in verse 10 of chapter 3? You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture 
is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Amen. Now, Beginning in verse 10, Paul says, you, however, have followed. He says that in order to contrast the difference in Timothy as a faithful teacher and the false teachers of the preceding verses. Timothy has been a faithful observer and follower of Paul's life. And Paul is ecstatically praising Timothy for imitating him as he has done his best to imitate Christ. Some may read into what Paul is saying and say that he's being boastful, that he's trying to draw attention to himself, but clearly that's not what he's getting at. What is Paul's teaching? Christ. Who is his conduct meant to honor? Christ. What is his aim? Christ. Where is his faith? It's in Christ. For whom does he remain patient and steadfast? For Christ. Whom does he love dearly? Christ. For whom does he suffer persecution for? It's for Christ. And Paul is commending Timothy for sharing in all nine of these things as well. For he has done all these things well. But then Paul begins to reference all these places that he's dealt with persecution. Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra were all places in Paul's first missionary journey, which Timothy wasn't with him at that time. So how did Timothy see these things? How did he know? Well, perhaps Timothy was in Lystra or even witnessed when Paul was left for dead after being stoned in Acts 14.19. We don't really know But the point, really, is that Timothy was so well acquainted with Paul that he understood what Paul's experiences were at each place and that he himself would inevitably share in those same sufferings at some point in his Christian walk. And if we think that this kind of suffering, though, is only for leaders like Paul or for Timothy... Paul gives this warning, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. Not the leaders. All. It would do us well to recall the words of Jesus in Matthew 16 when He said, 
when it says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Persecution is not only for those who hold a pastoral or a missionary position, but all believers will face a measure of suffering. And part of following Jesus is that we are willing to follow Jesus into that persecution, even when it means death. This doesn't mean that all will suffer to the same degree. It does not mean that all will suffer in the same ways. But the Christian will experience persecution in their lifetime. And I also think we should understand the word persecution better. It's not always defined as life-threatening or intense forms of physical punishment. Jesus gives a little more clarification on the sermon of the Mount, when he gave the Sermon on the Mount when he said that those who revile you or utter all kinds of evil against you, that also fits into a category of persecution. If you're experiencing persecution, we can take comfort here because Paul is clearly stating that this experience of persecution is not unique to only him or only to Timothy. It's to all Christ followers. And we have comfort because when we are persecuted for the cause of Christ, it will be met with great reward. But for the evil ones, but for the imposters who preach a false gospel, which is who Paul had in mind, they will receive due punishment. Paul says they'll go from bad to worse, from deceiving to being deceived themselves. And we see this today. Those who preach a gospel that is contrary to the gospel of Christ. We see that happen. Though they may be sincere in what they teach or preach, Paul warns that we must keep in mind that sincerity is not the same thing as faithfulness to the one true gospel message. You can be sincere and wrong at the same time. How does that happen? How does that happen? It happens when the center of worship and focus turns off of Christ and on to something else. Paul's words about the imposters here, doesn't pull, he doesn't pull any punches. Those that are focused on anything outside of Christ and his true message are deceived. Paul warns that things will go from bad to worse, whether here and now or after death. But as for us, for the Christian, we must be careful about remaining faithful to the one true Word of God. We must hold fast to it as our primary source of wisdom, knowledge, strength, and comfort. We must study it, preserve it, cherish it, and allow it to guide our every move. That's what Paul is exhorting to Timothy here in verses 14 and 15. Timothy, you have been a faithful follower. Now continue on. In verses 10 through 13, Paul laid some groundwork for Timothy to reflect on so that when trials and tribulations do come, he can look back at where the Lord has brought him as he has followed Paul. Then here in verse 15... 
Paul says he can also rely on these sacred writings he's been so well acquainted with since he was a child in order to remain steadfast in his faith and steadfast in the mission that stems from Christ. The one whom Timothy has placed his faith in. It is a mission to spread the gospel and Paul gives us two reasons why Timothy should have confidence to continue in that mission. First, he can continue on knowing the character and trustworthiness of his teachers. His mother and his grandmother were integral because they first introduced him to the faith. Paul even expresses delight for them and their impact on Timothy's life back in chapter 1. And Paul was a teacher of his as well. At the beginning of the book, he refers to Timothy as a child, not to be taken literally, but, be, but rather to express that he has been a primary teacher, a primary role model for Timothy. Paul selected him as a disciple. He laid hands on him to ordain him. And Paul has this authority from Christ. He has an apostolic authority that comes directly from Christ. The book of Acts recounts the event when Christ met Paul on the road to Damascus. And from that moment, 2 Timothy 1, 11 and 12 says Paul was entrusted with the deposit of the gospel to begin preaching and teaching everywhere he went. So what does this mean? Timothy can continue on with the confidence in both the character and trustworthiness of these teachers. And even more so in the apostolic authority with which Paul was given by God. A second reason. A second reason Timothy could have confidence is because of the sacred writings with which he had become acquainted with in childhood. His mother and grandmother taught him the Old Testament. He was very familiar with them. Paul is saying that not only can Timothy rely on what he learned from Paul, but he can also rely on the fact that all he learned from the Old Testament aligns rightly with what the Apostle Paul has been claiming and preaching all along. It fits together. I think that applies to you and I today. This biblical gospel that we believe stems both from the prophets of God in the Old Testament and the apostles of Christ in the New Testament. To boil this all down, if Timothy had any doubts, if he had any reasons to quit, this is a double authentication that Paul is giving for Timothy to uphold his faith. Remember you have followed me. And remember these scriptures that you hold so dearly when you encounter persecution. And then we get to this very theologically rich line that we have in verses 16 and 17. Paul continues his argument to Timothy about having confidence in the scriptures. Why should he have confidence in the Scriptures? Paul states that all Scripture is breathed out and pro- by God and profitable. It's important to add the by God there. I almost missed that. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. 
We'll get to profitable here in a second, but he said breathed out by God. So what is Paul saying? How does that impact the various authors of the various books of the Bible that were put together over many years? Did God control them as they were writing? Timothy at the time couldn't have had a copy of the New Testament in front of him. So is Paul only referring to the Old Testament? This brings a lot of different questions that we have to wrestle with. It's a challenging statement. Let's begin with the phrase, breathed out by God. I am going to butcher these words, but I'm going to say them anyways, Brett. Sorry. Bear with me, folks. This phrase, it's important because I refer to it later on, so just follow me, okay? This phrase, breathed out by God, is a translation of a single Greek word, theanoustos. You give me a thumbs up. <laughs> it's a compound word containing God, theos, and breathe, neo. Somewhat. Theos and yo, okay? God breathe. Theanustas. We got it, okay? I'll refer back to it. I did this on purpose. Just remember that as best as you can. Some translations may use the word inspired. It is true we say inspired to express how God worked in and through the, script, the writers of Scripture. That is true. But I think that some of those direct translations that use only the word inspired, I think it misses really the depth of what Paul was trying to get at here. This word, theanoustos, is meant to emphasize the divine authority of Scripture. Think of it, think of it like this. When we use air in our lungs to sound out words that we want to say and how we want to communicate with one another, we, we, we use air, we breathe as we're doing so. Paul is saying the same thing of Scripture. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. Scripture is God's Word. Scripture is the written form of special revelation providing God's people with an enduring witness to the work of God in Christ. This scripture has been breathed out by God through His Spirit, aiding the authors of scripture as they wrote. I think our church's statement of faith is helpful to understand this a little bit more. It says, In His sovereignty... God so superintended the human authors of Scripture that although they wrote what they wrote was genuinely their own, it was nevertheless the very Word of God verbally inspired in every part equally. All Scripture. Now, obviously... Timothy did not have a physical copy of the New Testament in front of him. Paul was referring to the sacred writings that you and I would call the Old Testament. Paul is maintaining that all passages of the Old Testament are from God. That includes the long-winded genealogies. 
That includes the long list of commandments and laws. All of it is from God. All of it has purpose and has divine authority. But for you and I, how do we reconcile that with having a New Testament? Can we apply the way Paul characterizes Scripture to the New Testament as well? I think there are a few ways that this statement can extend to the New Testament as well. First, we know that Jesus commissioned His disciples to remember what they've been taught. The book of John gives several instances of this. John 2, 12, 15, 16. Jesus is exhorting the disciples to remember, not just for their own sake, but also to share what they have learned with others. And again, it's not just that He told them to remember, but that the Holy Spirit would bring remembrance everything that Jesus taught. And this actually aligns with what was said earlier when I was trying to pronounce those words. This aligns with what was said earlier because spirit and breath come from the same word in Greek. I'm not going to say it again. It comes from the same word. Second, there's authority claimed by the New Testament writers, like Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3.14 or in 1 Corinthians 7.10-12. That authority isn't just claimed by them alone, but other letters also attest to their authority. Peter, in 2 Peter 3.16, he affirms Paul and his writings as Scripture. And finally, when we look at all of the New Testament, it doesn't contradict the writings of the Old. In fact, they use the Old Testament to build their argument. They affirm it, using it to drive home their points. We've seen that in Matthew, right? We've been dealing with a lot of Matthew. Matthew incorporates a lot of the book of Isaiah. Every author of the New Testament enforces the Old Testament, and we can trust in the New Testament as God's direct word to us as well. But it's also necessary to understand what Scripture does for us. Paul says that Scripture is profitable for four reasons, but we're going to look at them in pairs, okay? The first two reasons go together, and the last two reasons go together. Pair number one. Okay, pair number one, it has to do with our creed, teaching, and reproof. The NEB, the New English Bible, that translation really gives us a lot more clarity when it paraphrases teaching and reproof as for teaching the truth and refuting error. Here you have a positive word in teaching, meaning that Scripture is telling us truth And it's telling us what we should believe. It supplies us with the story of the Creator and His never-ending quest to reconcile His creation back to Himself. In its teaching, we're supplied with sound doctrine that helps to shape our lives and formulate a right understanding of who God is. But it also says reproof refuting error, 
meaning that it also tells us not only what we should believe and gives us this sound doctrine to follow, but also what we should not believe. It tells us what we should not believe and what we should not incorporate into our practices. It helps us to understand what is false. And where those two, that that first pair, where that helps us understand our creed, the second pair helps us to understand our conduct, correction, and training in righteousness. When using the word correction, Paul is saying that Scripture helps by setting things right. It tells us where we have gone wrong and how we can look to set it right. Not only does it tell us where we've gone wrong, it educates us on what a righteous life ought to look like. It outlines for us what we must do as Christ followers to live a life that is pleasing to God. Scripture helps to define our belief and our conduct. It's God's special revelation to us directly from Him. I know, we could probably go even deeper in that. But we arrive here at these final verses of our text. Verses 1-5. through This final charge from Paul to Timothy, it gives me emotion. If you really take in and if you digest everything that Paul has said, and then you read this next part, I hope that you get chills. I really do. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing and His kingdom preach the Word. Preach the Word. Do you you feel the gravity of that statement. Do you feel the gravity of that charge to Timothy? Because looking down on it and seeing the whole picture, Paul is at death's door. These are his last words. And with his last words, now that he has seen that his time is up, the writing is on the wall with his last words, he says to Timothy to encourage him, fulfill your ministry by preaching the word. By giving this charge to Timothy, Paul raises the stakes by doing so in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. Timothy must adhere to this instruction, not only because God the Father and Christ Jesus are watching, but because Christ will one day judge the living and the dead. And this refers to Christ's second coming where he will judge appropriately and reign over all things. Timothy will have to answer to God for how he responds to Paul's commands. Preach the word. And Paul doesn't leave Timothy there. He doesn't just say, preach the word. Go. He then says how he should preach. What that should look like. Well, Timothy should first preach with urgency. 
Being ready in and out of season doesn't only mean he should be alert to preaching when the opportunity comes, whether he's expecting it or not. Though there's some truth there, that is true. It also means Timothy should be insistent and urgent with this gospel. He should be insistent and urgent because he's been entrusted with it. He is dealing with matters of life and death. Like us, Paul and Timothy don't always know where someone stood with Christ just by looking at them. Paul is saying that Timothy must be insistently urging people to respond to this good news. And we should too. He then says that he should reprove, rebuke, and exhort with his preaching. I think it's important to recall that Timothy has been made a shepherd over the establishment of the church at Ephesus. He's in a pastoral role. Paul is telling Timothy his preaching will require him to confront error in doctrine or morals. And it's imperative that Timothy do so because, again, his job and his desire is to lead people away from judgment into life. And finally, Timothy should be preaching the word with complete patience and teaching. And there's a distinction there. Preaching and teaching, it's important. If you're a parent or if you're a teacher, when you're working with or training a child, you don't just simply tell them that two times two equals four, and that's that. As a child, first learning multiplication, that makes no sense. I don't understand that. You have to explain it. It's easy for us, but we have to explain that two times two equals four because you have two groups of two items in each, and when you count it all up, that equals four. Paul is saying that preaching the Word must also be done patiently and should be explained in manners that are understandable to the individuals. This includes laboring through hard concepts, laboring through hard conversations, walking alongside someone even when they continue to stumble, that you should continue to point them back to Christ even in the midst of a sinful pattern over and over and over again. He must be patient and long-suffering as he preaches the Word. And here, I pause to ask you to reflect on your pastors for a moment. This is where you can and where you should hold us accountable. Would you say that we check these boxes? Do we preach the Word with urgency about the coming kingdom of Christ? Do we preach to help confront error? And when we preach, are our words from the pulpit, or even in our one-on-one conversations, are they intertwined with gentleness and long-suffering? Brett and Trey, we should be asking ourselves these same questions. We should examine 
our work, do you feel like we check all these boxes? Do you know of areas where we can grow? Because we must be ready. The time is coming. It's upon us where people will not listen to sound teaching. They will turn to false teachers that preach only what they want to hear. And while we still have the chance, we must be ready to preach the gospel before they turn away from truth and seek out myths for themselves. That's why Paul ends with this third and final as for you statement. He draws a distinction between those who will not listen, who waver when things are tough, who have itching ears to follow whatever to follow whatever satisfies them right away. He makes that distinction between them and Timothy. As for Timothy, he reminds him to remain steadfast, to persevere as he fulfills his ministry work. Paul's words are touching because as he's writing, as he's writing these words, he's about to lose his life in order to fulfill his own ministry. He tells Timothy he should be willing to do the same. And we too should be willing to do the same. We too should strive to fulfill our ministry as a response to the work of Scripture in our lives. But how? How do we do this? I think we can follow a similar path that Paul has lined out for us already in this text as a matter of application for us today. Remember I told you that this letter was written to a fellow Christian. And I believe it can be applied to all Christians. So number one, remember your history. As Christians, God has placed us on a specific path to salvation in Christ. And your path is vastly different from mine, and it's vastly different from the person that's sitting next to you. Some of us here are new believers. Some of us have been in the faith for a long time. But I want you to remember your Christian experience. Remember those whom the Lord has used to guide you on that path. Remember your teachers, your pastors, your family, your friends, the neighbor. Remember the stranger, maybe, that spoke the gospel to you. Do you see God's hand in the midst of that? Even as imperfect as it might have been, do you see God's perfect sovereignty in the midst of all that? I think that's why Paul recalls this trust that Timothy has put in all his teachers. It's not to say that Paul and Lois and Eunice were all perfect examples for Timothy, but it's to show God's chosen means of saving grace. As imperfect as the vessels are, God has sovereignty through it all, and we can take comfort and be reminded in our mission that God has set us apart for specific purpose and reason. We should also remember Scripture's ability. This word that we have, it is not just a storybook. It's not just a book 
with words printed in black and white with absolutely no purpose. This word is life-giving. This God-breathed word has the ability to breathe new life into us. It has done that for us. And through the power of this word, Paul says back in 3.15 that the aim in Scripture is to make you wise enough that you put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you. There is no other word from anyone or anything in the world that has this unique ability. Only the Word of God can save. It is there in God's Word that we understand God more deeply, that we have good news about forgiveness and experience that forgiveness by believing in the name of Jesus Christ. And when you feel you are slowing down, remember the ability that Scripture has to remind you of what is absolutely true. It also reminds you of what is false. It shows us where we've erred and how to course correct. It is when we keep going in this Gospel and growing in the Scriptures as Paul says it, that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. We should also remember Scripture's origin. Scripture's origin. Paul's word choice here about Scripture being God-breathed, it's perfect. I wonder where he got it from. I don't know how he came up with it. But it's perfect. Just as God spoke creation into existence and breathed life into it, He has done the same with His Word and revealed Himself with it. Through human instruments, the Spirit has produced for us a divine product that expresses the divine Lordship of Jesus. It has all authority because it originates from the true source of authority. That stands for all of Scripture. There isn't a single piece of this divine product that isn't breathed out by God and that isn't unified. And that includes whether it has red letters or not. It's all one unified divine product. To quote Kevin DeYoung, He says, God's gracious self-disclosure comes to us through the Word made flesh and by the inscripturated Word of God. These two modes of revelation reveal to us one God, one truth, one way, and one coherent set of promises, threats, and commands to live by. We must not seek to know the Word who is divine apart from the divine words of the Bible. And we ought not read the words of the Bible without an eye on the incarnate, on the Word incarnate. When it comes to seeing God and His truth in Christ and in Holy Scripture, one is not more reliable, more trustworthy, or more relevant than the other. Scripture, because it is the breathed out Word of God, possesses the same authority as the God-man Jesus Christ. Submission to the Scriptures is submission to God. Rebellion against the Scriptures is rebellion against God. 
Therefore, we, we must hold the highest view of this inspiration, that word, that this word has originated from God Himself and nothing else. And finally, Scripture must define every aspect of our ministry. And it is for all to preach urgently. It's not only for the pastor to preach. Though this letter was specifically to a pastor, it can be applied to us all in our daily lives as we live amongst the people of this world. This is for all believers to do. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul calls the Christian an ambassador, one who is a representative of Christ. And as his representatives, it is our job to proclaim that same gospel that has been deposited in us. And we cannot proclaim solely by serving. Preaching the gospel is different than displaying the gospel through serving There's a popular quote that's often misattributed to St. Francis of Assisi. You may have heard it. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if if necessary. Fellow Christians over time have used that mantra as a sort of claim that their actions of being saved through faith is of greater importance than verbally preaching the gospel. Essentially, that the way they live their lives literally speaks more about Christ than any words they can say. While the deeds of a true Christ follower should, immense, should speak immensely of our faith, as we see in James 2, faithful serving is not a replacement for the audible preaching of God's Word. Paul addresses that further in Romans 10.14 when he implores the church of Rome to preach this message of salvation to all people. He says, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Remember when I told you to think back on someone who preached the Word to you? What if they weren't ready? It's a good thing they were. God used them. Just as Paul exhorted Timothy to be ready in and out of season, we must be as well. There are many that are lost and need to hear this good news that we have been so blessed to carry. I'm encouraged already to see many ways in which people here are already preaching the Gospel on a regular basis. Many are speaking the Gospel in in ministries such as the Christian Mission for the Deaf, Teaching Truth International, the Pregnancy Help Center, and many other places. These are good. These are wonderful. I'm also encouraged to hear regular reports of people speaking the Gospel in their homes to their children to their Hindu neighbors, and to those that they meet in the grocery stores. This church does well to speak the Gospel and to meet the needs of those around them. But church, please don't stop. Do not stop. 
We should be aware not to allow laziness or distraction to keep us from fulfilling our ministry. We should remain vigilant despite any circumstance we encounter. Remember where you have come from, what you have learned, and who you have followed. Remember what God has done for you through the power of His Word. If you were able to follow all the points and put them together, it makes this sentence, you have followed. Now continue on with Scripture as your authority and preach the Word. This Word is sufficient and trustworthy. Now go and keep preaching the Word. Let's pray. Lord, this Word has been with You since the beginning. And this Word was made incarnate in Jesus Christ. Through Your prophet Isaiah, You said that Your Word will not return void, but would accomplish Your purposes. I pray that we would humble ourselves to be the instruments that You use for those purposes. Holy Spirit, embolden us and empower us even in the midst of persecution to go into all nations and preach the cause of Christ. Amen. Amen.